HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome co-founder of Soulfire Farm, Leah Penniman. In today's episode, we'll talk to Leah about making the American food system more just, bringing people of color back to farming. And we'll hear Leah's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Our thoughts continue to be with everyone struggling to cope with the COVID pandemic and those exercising their rights of free speech and protest for solutions to racial injustice. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Given the gravity of what's transfixed the nation in the last weeks, I really wasn't sure if there was an appropriate inspiration. Advocacy for racial justice or even food justice is not really what Julia is known for. But then it occurred to me that in her own way, in her own time, Julia really was a revolutionary. At a time when primarily men said food should be made by big farms in big factories and packaged in cans and cardboard, she dared to question this view of progress. So I think we can appreciate her example that speaking up, sticking to your principles, and even practicing what you preach can have a long-term impact, maybe even more than you might imagine in the present moment. Someone borrowing from Julia's toolkit, using hard work, information, and wit, rather than arms, to be a revolutionary is Leah Penniman. Teacher, advocate, and especially farmer are not usually revolutionary descriptors, but they all apply to Leah. Named one of the 20 heroines revolutionizing food activism, to improve the planet by Food Tank in March 2020 and inducted into our own Heritage Radio Network's Hall of Fame in January 2019, Leah is the co-director and farm manager at Soul Fire Farm in Rensselaer County, New York. Leah and her team train Black, Latinx, and Indigenous people farming techniques and management practices as a means to address food access, health disparities, and other social issues. One's all laid starkly bare by both the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd. She has more than 20 years of experience as a soil steward and food sovereignty activist, having worked at the Food Project, Farm School, Many Hands Organic Farm, Youth Grow, and with farmers in Ghana, Haiti, and Mexico. She co-founded Soul Fire Farm in 2010 and is the author of Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farm's Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land, which seeks to teach people without experience how to garden and farm 
and tells the story of how black, brown, and indigenous people have been systematically disenfranchised from farming. At this transformational moment, when public health is colliding with social justice, Soul Fire Farm demonstrates how self-reliance, knowledge, and access to land can make people healthier and more secure and make society a fairer place. A welcome ray of hope and vision at this difficult time, she joins us to share how she advocates to end racism and injustice in the nation's food system. At the same time, she runs a farm. Welcome to the podcast, Leah. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor. Well, we're pleased you could be here, especially at a time where it's it's uh, takes a lot of energy, I would say, to talk about all of these things as it, while, while you're experiencing them. And you know, since, as I said, you, you've been an advocate for many of these issues in the food system for a long time before COVID, before George Floyd and the protests, I just was hoping you would just sort of share as best you can kind of where your mind is at right at this moment in time. Mm. Well, I appreciate the acknowledgement because I think for those of us who've been on the front lines of racial justice and food justice, we're uh, certainly super busy, you know, responding to the needs of our community, but also carrying the emotional labor of the awakening of so many folks who have uh, beforehand not really seen these issues laid bare. Um, so we're flooded with questions and uh, offers for support and folks wanting to get engaged and just doing our best to to help. Um, as you know, these issues are not new. You know, this country is really founded on the ideas of white supremacy and oppression, you know, taking land from indigenous people, enslaving black bodies, um, extracting from the earth. And there have been many manifestations of this. And, and what we see now is an exacerbation of these issues, but certainly nothing new. And I think that the ray of hope that I'm feeling right now is people who um, previously were unaware of how pervasive these issues of race, racial injustice are are having a, an aha moment and really seeing that, you know, if we're to move forward and create the society and world we want to see, we must, must address racial inequity. And um, and, I'm, and I'm really hopeful that we're at the dawning of a, a new era of, you know, of, of equity and fairness and dignity for all people. Well, I, I certainly think the protests, while there have been unpleasant things and unfortunate things that have happened, the the takeaway for me is how many people are doing it and what a rainbow of people are doing it. And that to me is, is I mean, at times upsetting, but overall really inspiring, of course, until the riot police move in. Yeah, I mean, we just yesterday, the Soul Fire Farm team went to a peaceful rally in the small city of Troy, New York, and 11,000 people turned out, which is almost half the population of that town. Uh, and it was incredible to see youth and elders, people who use wheelchairs, people who um, interpret through or, or speak through sign language. I mean, it was just the whole community turning out with this common message in defense of Black life, ab about the need to compost anti-Black racism and, and bring forth um, true racial equity. And it's just been very, very powerful to see, you know, folks who previously weren't politically engaged, taking to the streets and getting involved. Yeah, so we'll talk a lot more about this in this show, but I wanted to kind of start at a place for those who aren't familiar with your work and give you just the opportunity to kind of introduce us to Soulfire Farm, which obviously predates the current moment, but was inspired by your already informed concerns about these same issues. So tell us about the mission and, and what exactly goes on at the farm. Oh, I'd be happy to. Um, my partner and I joke that we have three children, Nishima, Emmett, and Soulfire Farm. So it's very close to my heart. Uh, we are a an Afro-Indigenous-centered community farm that's dedicated to ending racism and injustice in the food system. And there's three basic ways we do that, right? We um, steward 80 acres of traditionally Mohican territory using all regenerative and Afro-Indigenous methods. That means that Every year the soil gets better, the ecology gets better, the biodiversity gets better, and that food is packaged up and delivered to the doorsteps of those who need it most in our community each week. Uh, the second major thing we do is to train folks who are interested in farming, especially for marginalized communities. So we run day-long, week-long, and year-long courses that help folks get started with their own businesses or take managerial roles on existing farms. And then the final uh, thing we do, which is a big umbrella, is our policy work and advocacy 
advocacy because there are so many ways that society is set up to make it really hard for farm workers and farmers and the and consumers and the earth. And so we need to change those unfair laws. We need to work on sharing the land back to the people from whom it was taken uh, and other types of systemic reforms to make it possible to have a healthy food system. So, you know, that's Soul Fire in a nutshell. As you mentioned, we've been around since uh, 2010. Uh, though I was farming for over a decade before we actually opened Soul Fire Farm and have been deeply involved in in food justice and food sovereignty movements since I was a teenager. And is the farm then itself a nonprofit rather than most farms at least uh, have the ambition to be profitable? Is it actually organized kind of as a teaching farm more than, I don't know, a traditional um, farm or it's both? It's sort of both. So we've had a few different models. We were a private commercial farm uh, from 2010 until 2016. And then we added on the educational nonprofit component 2016 to present. So these entities operate side by side and are mutually reinforcing. So you, so maybe it's right to say that your farming model is as a sort of socially beneficial business because it isn't a nonprofit, but baked into its... Um, operating principles is giving back to the community from its what it makes. I think that would be fair to say, yeah. Okay. So I want to go back because I'm not uninformed about these issues, but I was struck by some stuff when preparing from the show that I hadn't understood quite as starkly as, and I, I um, was looking at what you contributed to for the Green New Deal about land theft and there's a chart in that about the line between white farm ownership and black farm ownership. And it, it, it says so much. So with just one graph about the reality and the facts, right, not just someone's opinion. And so I was really curious if you would actually talk about land theft and what has happened in America that has made the food system both unfair and racist. Sure, absolutely. And it is, um, so it's actually a heartbreaking story in terms of the land theft and disparity in this country. Um, the, the graph that you're talking about, I imagine, is the one that points out that 98% of the rural land in this country is white owned, which is a higher percentage than ever. Uh, you know, farming, meaning being a farm manager, is the whitest profession, whereas being a farm laborer is the brownest profession in the United States. So we have a, a super racially skewed industry, and it's not an accident of history. You know, of course, the original theft was the genocidal seizure, seizure of land from indigenous people, um, but that wasn't the only theft of land. You know, after the Emancipation Proclamation, 1865, there was a promise made by the Union Army to formerly enslaved Africans that they would be able to have 40 acres and a mule, a uh, very famous saying. But that was a broken promise. That land was never given. And in fact, reparations were given to the former slave masters, but not to the people who had toiled uh, for no pay uh, and, and in bonds. So the only way that Black folks were able to get land uh, was to save up money for generations. You know, Even though they were sharecroppers, Many of them were uh, incarcerated and, and forced back onto the land as convict leases, right? But but by 1910, they they purchased almost 16 million acres of land, which is a significant accomplishment. And almost all of that is gone. And there's three main reasons why it's gone. Number one is that uh, the backlash by white supremacists was really swift and severe. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan, the White Caps, the White Citizens Council did not want to see black people owning land. And so they burned crosses, they burned down houses, they shot at people, and they, they literally stole their deeds. So that was the major push factor for the Great Migration, right? The second big reason, and, and probably the most significant in terms of acreage, was that the federal government themselves discriminated against black farmers in terms of giving out loans, crop assistance, and technical assistance. So while the white farmers were getting all of these subsidies from the federal government, the black farmers were getting turned away. And, you know, you amplify that over generations and you see why the foreclosures happened. And then what we're dealing with right now is is the government now taking land um, as debt payments on Medicaid uh, as well as uh, USDA loans. And so because a lot of farmers don't leave, you know, black farmers don't have the legal services to leave behind a will. Their property goes into what's called air property, which is very vulnerable. And so there's all of these sort of legal entanglements that, that result in people losing their land. And, and that's why black farmers only have about 
uh, of the farmland today. So it's a, it's a huge issue, and it's one of the reasons that Soul Fire Farm helped start a land trust in the Northeast called Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust that's working on, you know, getting land back for uh, for pe- for Indigenous people, Black people, and others who have who have been kicked off and forced off their properties. I also love something you said that um, about affirmative action that I thought was such a great way to frame when in modern times people have resented, some people have resented affirmative action or think it's unfair or find, find ideas of reparations or even assistance abhorrent. When obviously we have a farm policy in America that's longstanding that provides tremendous subsidies to farmers and always has. Could you could you talk a little bit about the history of how people got land and whether that was all by their own bootstraps? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, I was not the one who came up with this term white affirmative action, but I think it's really powerful because, as you mentioned, so many folks think of affirmative action as starting in, you know, around the 70s and having to do with college admissions and so forth. But you can actually trace it back to, you know, 1600s in Jamestown, Virginia, when indentured servants who were white uh, were given an allotment of land, a bag of seed, uh, and a bundle of clothes, you know, when they finished their tenure, whereas black indentured servants weren't given anything, right? And so you, you fast forward, uh, the Homestead Act is probably one of the biggest examples of white affirmative action where uh, white settlers got free or or low cost allotments uh, out in the Midwest at the expense of indigenous people. Uh, black folks uh, got few to know of those. And then another example would be the GI Bill. So uh, when soldiers were coming home from World War II, the federal government provided no interest mortgages so that they could climb into the middle class, you know, and, and get these homes in the suburbs with white picket fences and so forth. But because of the zoning restrictions that ghettoized black and brown people into very specific neighborhoods and then outline those neighborhoods in red, a practice called redlining. It was these maps were created that told banks not to lend in these neighborhoods. It basically meant that black and brown people did not get these mortgages and could not climb into the middle class. And according to the Pew Research Center, one of the major reasons why there is a 16 to 1 white to black wealth gap right now, meaning like if you're born white, you're 16 times richer when you take your first breath than if you're born black, right, is because of property inheritance. You're not because of the work you did in your lifetime, but because most 80% of people's wealth actually comes through inheritance. Uh, so it, it doesn't just impact the food system and farming. This wealth disparity impacts all aspects of our lives, you know, where we get to live, what kind of education we can give to our children, the safety of our neighborhoods and the incarceration rates and on and on and on. And so one of the reasons I talk about reparations and, and don't think it's scary at all is because if we really want to fix injustice in society, we have to redistribute land and wealth and resources. Otherwise, these same social issues are going to com- compound themselves generation after generation. Well, and I think that way of framing it is so helpful to remind white people and all people that lots of people are getting subsidies and they have fancier names than welfare, but there's all kinds of things like that, both government and otherwise, that are legs up. And so people, I feel, like, t- tend to frame these things about like, well, why should the small group of people get something for something that happened 200, you know, 100 years ago? But that, that I think that's mm-hmm. so helpful. And hopefully now it's very clear. I mean, you look at the airlines and Snack Shack, these big companies and the way that they cashed in on the COVID relief. And, you know, the rest of us are scrambling for our $10,000 checks so we don't have to lay off our employees. So, you know, that that trend continues of major, major subsidies for corporations, for agribusiness. Um, but of course, it's not couched in the same way as as welfare or reparations. It's couched as de- being a deserved thing. Exactly. Well, hopefully a lot of us are experiencing a significant reframing of the, uh, the way things really are. Um, before we get back more into that subject, though, I did want to originally when we first had, had um, wanted to talk to you, we came out of the idea of like, that everyone with the pandemic was turning their, not everyone, lots more people than usual were turning their minds to gardening and maybe even farming and trying to get into it. And then I was really struck by that, especially in this age of digital expectations of immediacy that, you know, you could start planting a garden tomorrow, but you 
probably couldn't benefit it for some time. So I was curious, given your experience of already being well into it and training people, what's kind of your advice on those who who want to get back to gardening or even start a small farm on sort of balancing the the patience with the expectations? Mm. Well, it is true that gardening takes patience. There really is no shortcut. A seed to manifest its destiny needs to go through all of its stages. And I think one of the diseases of society right now is the the rush and the urgency. And there's a, a spiritual lesson, emotional lesson to be had Um you know, in waiting for your crops to bloom. But I will say for people who don't have a lot of time or a lot of space, there are some things you can grow uh, that take a lot less time. So for example, right on your windowsill or your counter, uh, you could grow lentil sprouts or mung bean sprouts. That only takes three or four days, right? You could also do uh, microgreens or baby greens, um, you know, right on your windowsill or out on your deck or your porch. And that's 10 to 14 days. And so there's a lot of a lot of ways to get things started and, and sort of dip your toe into the water, see if you like it, and then you can build up to something like a winter squash where you have to wait 120 days to get your fruit. Well, that is helpful. And would you advise that too, that that it's good to do those shorter term things as a starting point or along with more ambitious things because it kind of helps keep you motivated if you're seeing some faster results? I think it it does make sense, you know, with anything, any new skill that you're learning, you know, when you are learning to ride your bicycle, there's training wheels and a trike that comes before your road bike. And so I think if you're just getting into gardening, starting with sprouts or microgreens or container gardens uh, makes a lot of sense because you're going to be able to build your skills and confidence, uh, you know, as you prepare to take on a more ambitious area of land. Makes sense. Okay, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Leah Penniman from Soulfire Farm to talk about farming and food justice. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back. We're talking to food sovereignty advocate and farmer, Leah Penniman from Soulfire Farm. So we talked about some of the, the history and what lies behind why our food system is quite inherently unjust. And But I also know, and we talked about, but not in detail, that you've worked on how do we change this. So how do we begin to really change the status quo? Well, you know, to change a system that's fundamentally built on oppression of one group, um, enriching of another group that's fundamentally built on white supremacy and racism is not going to be overnight. You know, it it took hundreds of years to build this system and it will take us at least a few generations to dismantle it. But I think there are a few things that we can pay attention to, especially uh, in these times of pandemic. Um, These are even more highlighted. So for example, we talked earlier about the fact that 98% of the farmland in this country is owned by white Americans. And Ralph Page, uh, who is the executive director of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives for many years, said, you know, land is the only real wealth in this country. And if we don't have any, we'll be out of the picture. So we need, I believe, a nationwide commitment to study healthy model of land redistribution and figure out how to give land back so that indigenous people have their fair share, black folks, Latinx folks all have their fair share. And this is not to say that people need to lose their homes, right? There's all of these uh, ways that we could study. For example, can there be caps on inheritance? So after a certain amount of wealth, you know, 
that's not going to go to that child is going to go to a public trust. All of these lands that are in uh, probate or or legal limbo, is there a way that they can go into a trust for disadvantaged communities, et cetera, et cetera, um, voluntary donations. And so so right now, the Congress hasn't even had the political will to pass H.R. 40 to study this. So we need to at least start by looking at what is a way to think about land redistribution. I think another big thing to look at if we want to talk about fairness and equity in the food system is farm workers. Um, a lot of folks don't know this. It was new to me a few years ago. But the Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Labor Relations Act, which are the big federal laws that protect workers, they don't even apply to farm and food workers. And there's a racist history to this, too. When these laws were passed, um, the Southern Democrats at the time in the 30s would not vote for them if they included black and brown people. So they put exclusions in the laws, which persist. And that basically means like if you're a farm worker or a food worker, worker, you don't have the same minimum wage as everybody else. You don't have a right to a day off once a week, no overtime pay, no right to unionize, limited child labor protections. And it's it's 2020, y'all, right? So we need to actually update our labor laws to make sure that the people who do the most important work, which is feed us, um, have at least the same protections as other workers. I would say even more are needed, but let's just start with like a level playing field, right? And the final thing that I'll mention in terms of equity has to do with the consumer side of things as well. Uh, because the reality is that um, there's way too much hunger in this country, period. But if you are Black or Indigenous, you're three to four times more likely to be hungry than a white person, um, especially children. And Again, there's more than enough food for everyone. So this is an issue of poverty. It's an issue of food distribution and access. It's an issue of ghettoization in terms of redlining and housing discrimination where people are confined to. And so we need to make sure that, of course, like SNAP and our entitlement programs are fully funded, our school lunch programs, institutional programs, but also pay attention to food sovereignty and how are people able to participate in growing their own food. Um, urban gardening gets almost no funding um, at the federal level. There aren't extension agents to support gardening. It's been seen as this side project uh, to the real business of agriculture. But Cuba, you know, grows half of its food in the cities, half of its uh, fresh food. And so I think we can look at what are the ways that communities get to participate in, uh, you know, our own food security, our own food sovereignty, and, and support that as a society. Yeah, no, thank, thanks for highlighting that. And I wanted to let you talk a little bit more, because I think whenever people hear the word reparations, um, they get frightened and particularly land redistribution also wealth redistribution particularly why people's mind goes it's going to be taken away from me and given to other people but what you're really advocating for i I think as i understand it is government policy that prioritizes a redistribution through various models that are certainly fair to individuals and use government resources or Thing, ways that subsidies are provided to subsidize, I guess, I'll just say it this way, the right things rather than the wrong things. Like, for instance, I will come out and say, I don't think all the corn subsidies are helping anybody. And that, you know, the your idea is, and it's not yours alone, the idea behind this concept is that, well, what if you took some of the money from corn subsidies and bought land trust that was then redistributed. It's that kind of idea. Am I right? Or, or please explain it uh, in more detail. <laughs> of how reparations would work. I mean, well, here, first of all, I want to push back a little bit on, you know, folks who are afraid to lose something, right? Because, well, let me tell you a story. So one of my mentors, Ed Whitfield, uh, who was very active in the civil rights movement, is very active in, in co-ops. He said, you know, to understand reparations, imagine that your neighbor came over and stole your cow. And then a couple weeks later, the neighbor realizes this was wrong. So they come back to your house, apologize, you know, tears of remorse in their eyes and say, I know it was really bad that I stole your cow, but I'm going to make it up to you, right? Every week for the rest of this cow's life, I'm going to bring you half a pound of butter, right? Or according to your metaphor, every week for the rest of the of this cow's life, I am going to have the government tax both of us in order to buy you half a pound of butter, right? Your response would probably be like, could I just have my cow back? Like... 
And here's the thing, like the whole continent is stolen from indigenous people. These are unceded territories by and large. We have at least $7 trillion of unpaid wages to black and brown people and at least that amount of exclusions from uh, these white affirmative action. We have legacy of, of discrimination and over-policing and all of this. And so society does have a debt to pay um, and it, it does cost money to pay a debt. And so I think that for folks who are holding onto their white privilege so tightly that they're just like, well, I shouldn't have to give up the things that my ancestors stole from other people. I think it's a good time to like reflect on why that is and why that's being held in that way and seen as, you know, justified or rightfully owned and not um, up for conversation about what a fair sharing would look like. So is the idea that because there are plenty of white people who don't own land and certainly farmland is that like people not of color should pay more tax and that tax money would then be redistributed to non-white folks or people who had land taken from them? Oh, the idea with HR 40 is literally just to study a commission is to create a commission just to study different models of reparations that have happened around the world and that have been proposed by academics and think tanks and then to suggest what might work for our societal context. And so Soulfire Farm is certainly not proposing that we have the answer to how to you know, solve reparations. It's a huge, huge issue. And it's going to be different for land versus education versus unpaid wages. You know, All of these have nuance to them. Um, but what we're advocating for is the same thing that um, Movement for Black Lives just put out a, a reparations platform over the wintertime um, that just proposes what are those key questions and key resources we can use to engage in a national conversation about what reparations models are going to work for our society. Yeah, and I think that's what I was asking you about is because I think that, you know, there's the Robert Mugabe model of reparations, um, which is very scary for almost everyone because it's a bit an, an anarchist. But you're, you're I, I think what what is for the most part being proposed is what you're saying is that you figure out what is a fair and sort of incremental might be the wrong word, but it, but is not a sort of, you know, stealing back model, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I don't know a lot about the details of that model. And I, I don't think giving back would be stealing. But I think that um, there are certainly we, we are very blessed um, in this nation to have an overabundance of resources. So there's a a lot of money that's sitting there making more money, right? There's a lot of land that's sitting there fallow and collecting CSP payments. And so what are the ways we can, I would advocate for looking at these resources that could be put into collective trust and are right now making passive income and think about how to um, redistribute those back to to the folks who, um, you know, rightfully own them. And I think one of the challenges is that you know, there are not as many white people engaging actively in the conversation, but I see folks of color making real sacrifices on behalf of each other. For example, the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust is entirely black and brown farmers, most of whom have no land, right? And still, and still, the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust has a commitment that anytime they purchase a piece of land or anytime anyone donates a piece of land, the first thing they do is go to the indigenous tribe of that area, whether it's Mohican, Abenaki, Wampanoag, and offer the land for free to that tribe first as a right of first refusal. And if they don't want it, then it goes to the black farmer. That is radical accountability. And so if that can be done in a, amongst a community of people that don't have any land or resources, I think we as a society can figure out how to think about true justice and true sharing um, back to the people who've been harmed um, in the legacy of wealth building in this country. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is a lot um to, to, to think about and explore because it has so many complex layers. But I think some of the things that you suggest like that, the example of land trusts, which which have been, been used outside of a, a, a sort of a racial equality or reparation setting can be effective vehicles. And they're, they're not the overall solution, but they're a first step. And I think one of the things you're advocating for is like, we haven't even gotten to first steps. Let's get to some first steps. Exactly. The first step is to acknowledge that there 
has been an unjust seizure of land and labor and to be willing to open a dialogue about what is the best way to address that and make it right as a nation. Well, and I think your example is also an example of for people of color, there there's already an inherent willingness to be overly fair, I think, in, in that example um, that you gave. Um, so I also wanted to ask you, you brought this up before about, you know, a large percentage of people of color live in, in urban areas. Um, and where you see the opportunities there, you you mentioned that urban gardening is hardly funded. And I, I, I know it does exist, but it, I assume that's mostly then through nonprofits and grants. Did you want to talk about the opportunity for that? Absolutely. So, you know, urban farming has a really long legacy. Also in, in marginalized communities, you can trace it back to um you know, even the times of enslavement and the provision gardens and the newly emancipated uh, folks growing their kitchen gardens, you know, fast forward to Hattie Carthen in Bedsty greening it up and uh, the Newsome family in Tulsa. So there's this, it's really been steeped in uh, cultural heritage and preservation, as well as the need for people to, to grow their own food who are living in adverse conditions. And for the most part, community gardens have been self-funded. You know, there haven't been uh, many grant programs or, you know, public funding or whatnot for community gardens. It's been people quite literally volunteering, cleaning up vacant lots, doing their soil testing and, and making it happen, which is really beautiful. Uh, and I think that there's an opportunity in there to recognize the huge contribution that urban gardening has to food security, but also to um, community health and well-being you know, in terms of, of exercise, access to the outdoors, bringing together elders and children, the spiritual and emotional grounding that can come from that connection to nature. So all of that has an immense value. And there are ways that we as a society can direct resources to supporting those gardens. And probably the most important thing, and we keep coming back to land, but so many of these gardens don't have secure land tenure. You know, if the it's city-owned property. As soon as a developer comes in and offers a nice price, you see people kicked off their lands. And it's, it's been a big struggle in New York City, a big struggle in Boston, uh, which are, are the cities nearest us. And so I think if we can, again, figure out how do we protect these lands that are providing so much resource for marginalized communities um, is one step that would go a long way towards food sovereignty. Or even the idea, there's always been this idea of the, not always, but it, it's a longstanding idea in cities about the importance of green space and how Central Park was created and um, Fenway in Boston and these areas, you know, that are vital to be the lungs of the city, if you will. But obviously, a lot of them are just rolling green lawns, which we now know are not super environmental. And even you could change how those are used, right? Exactly, exactly. And there's um, some really great movements, including the Baltimore Black Church Food Security Network, as well as Grow Where You Are in Atlanta. And they are doing that very work of taking, you know, church lawns and schoolyard lawns and, and people's backyards and transforming them into green spaces. Um, it's really powerful. So Reverend Heber Brown is is one of those revolutionaries who's working in that way and has been able to produce a significant amount of food for food pantries as well as uh, as well as use some of the funds that's generated to purchase produce from black farmers in the rural areas and bring that in uh, to sell through the churches as well. So that's been a really cool um, alternative food system. I also I, I know this is not exactly your 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 full expertise, but I wanted to get your thoughts living in a rural environment in that obviously rural poverty is is a big and I feel like one of the the least unless you maybe live in a rural area address national problems, which also is um, generally much more worse and much more prevalent amongst people of color. So is there a solution with rural poverty around the sort of land and credit base? Is that one of the things that, at least in your view, would make a huge difference and, and also help make the rural poor more self-sufficient? 
Yeah, well, contrary to popular belief, we are quite rural out here. So, so Soul Fire Farm is on 80 <laughs> acres in Rensselaer County, which is really, really rural. We in the woods. Um, and so it is, and I grew up rural. So it is our area of expertise for sure. And I think that it's often ignored. Um, you know, we actually are in what the USDA calls a food desert because we're so far uh, from any grocery stores or farmers markets, just like many urban areas are also termed food deserts by the federal government. And you know, I think that of the many things we need to address about rural poverty, I'll mention two of them briefly. One is that uh, the USDA removed price supports for many farm, many small farmers. And so that's a fancy way of saying you used to be guaranteed a certain amount for your milk or your soy or your vegetables. And you don't you don't have that anymore. And so it's very, very hard for farmers to make ends meet. And what has moved in to replace the farming industry, at least in New York, is the prison industry, the private prison industry. And there's layers of complexity there. But we really believe that we should not be investing <laughs> more money in incarcerating our citizens, we should be investing in our food system. So that's one thing. And then another thing um, to mention is that, you know, right now, most of the federal government subsidies go to what I call trashing the planet. And so you get paid for doing big monocultures that, you know, damage the soil and damage the pollinators and drive climate change. But there's very little funding available for organic or what they call specialty crops. And so what if we flip it, right? What if we actually pay people for the ecosystem services they provide, like sequestering carbon um, or water reach, um, aquifer recharge, and find a way that that becomes part of the income stream for these rural farmers so they can stay on their land? Oh, well, would you be worried about that would put major um, ag conglomerates out of business? Should we be concerned about that? Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm being facetious, but I, I, I was just thinking about like, well, the only people who lose there might be Cargill, I guess. Would that be a bad thing? I mean, that that what, what's to me amazing about your statement is it's both radical, but I, I don't know who would actually suffer. I guess some shareholders. But I'm just curious what because I think there there's some view of like, oh, is that you know, there's always that view of like, well, that's going to harm the mainstream farmers. But are are, are there mainstream farmers anymore? <laughs> I mean, you're onto something. I don't have the stats in front of me, but corporations have taken over uh, farming almost completely uh, in the United States, large scale farming. So even family farmers are often in contract uh, with Tyson or Cargill or some of these major producers. And so they're not really operating independently. They're following the script that they're given. Um, and I do think that we need a radical shift in the way that the food system works. And so I am not afraid for Tyson to feel a little squeeze because I think that would push them to reform their corporate practices in order to comply and adhere to these new guidelines, right? And so if you can't be trashing the planet and getting all this money and you have to actually be doing things that have the seventh generation in mind, then we're going to see a corporate shift in terms of the types of farming practices they're doing, right? If we don't give you the subsidies unless you are paying your workers fairly and providing a day off and allowing them to unionize, you're going to see a shift, right? So we can really use the farm bill as a lever in order to encourage the type of practices that we want to see in a fair and sustainable food system. Yeah, right. The, the, the sort of irony and maybe downside for small farmers is if the government shifts its subsidy toward, you know, policies that don't trash the planets, well, you can bet the big companies are going to move right toward that. They just need the right incentives. Exactly. And in the meantime, they can come to us because we already know how to do it because <laughs> we've been doing it. <laughs> you, you, right. Even you can expand your educational programs. Um, so... Uh, as a sort of last question, I, wa I wanted to kind of hear from you, and this this is a big question, but but I think I'm asking you in the context of food justice and and food, not the sort of whole enchilada, if you will. But I'm still struck by the need to keep in mind that even though it's changed a lot, America, the stats are still kind of shocking. It's still, for all those freaking out, it's still a majority white country, and Black folks only make up about 13% of the population if you're sort of rounding up, which is kind of small, and it's not growing massively. So I think, to me, the reality is it's going to take allies to create the change. And from your point of view, what – and we've kind of talked about it, but I want you to sort of summarize it from, from in your own words. Like, how can white people help? 
Oh, well, here's the thing, right? It was not, it was certainly not indigenous people or black people who created racism um, or who created the oppression. And so we need everybody to pitch in to make it right. And there's a couple things folks can do. Like one is in the area of resource transfer, or, you know, if you're not scared of the word reparations, that would be the word, but figuring out what money, what land, what time um, or technical expertise you have that could be shared um, with organizations that are led by people of color working on these issues of injustice. And Soul Fire Farm actually created a reparations map, which is a pretty cool tool on our website where you can go and find projects near you that are working on these issues and, you know, donate time or land or whatever they're asking for. You can see right on the map. So that's, that's one thing folks can do. Um, I think another thing that's really important is to continue to educate yourself. You know, if a lot of this is new to you or you're feeling uncomfortable in this conversation, there are so many great books and podcasts out there. Um, a good place to start is, is a podcast called Seeing White by Seen on Radio. Um, there's also a great book called White Fragility, many, many, many more books. So um, and we have a resource list on our website as well. But get educated, have conversations with your friends and family, really normalize talking about uh, racial injustice because it's a lot easier to work on a solution if we're just ready to roll up our sleeves and do it and we're not feeling, you know, fragile and hurt by the idea that there's anything bad going on in the world. Um, and the final thing that that I will mention is just, you know, really getting involved with policy change. So we have a, a policy platform that uh, we work together with the HEAL Food Alliance to create. HEAL stands for Health, Environment, Agriculture, and Labor. And you can call your Congress people and let them know that you care about these issues of food justice, send them the link to those different uh, laws that should be passed, and keep on them to make sure that farm workers and farmers and the earth, you know, have basic rights. The one thing I was really um, struck by, because it came across in, in sort of an aside moment in the Becoming documentary about Michelle Obama's book tour, and she it's not a full-on, like, her. I don't recall her face being on camera and she's lecturing. It's like kind of a side in the hall, and she's like, people got to vote. And she's saying that now. And I was just curious from your perspective, because you didn't mention it as one of the front things, do you feel like that is a obviously it matters, but a critical step or what folks should focus on, or it's not necessarily as important as the other stuff? Oh, absolutely. So when I was talking about calling your Congress people, I was assuming that you had voted for them. So you actually have some leverage when you're calling them or you or that you have the power to vote them out. So, you know, my ancestors fought and died for the right to vote quite literally. Um, you know, and you look at one of our heroes that we modeled Soul Fire Farm after is is the work of Fannie Lou Hamer, who created Freedom Farm. And that farm was created specifically because when sharecroppers registered to vote, the landowners, the white landowners were so pissed off that they kicked them off the land. So they were homeless and jobless. And so they started these farm co-ops for these registered voter sharecroppers, right? That's where Freedom Farm. So absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Please register to vote, vote. And that's what allows you to then call your congressperson and say, hey, I voted for you or hey, I'm going to vote you out unless you X, Y, Z. Yep, right. Because the first question they ask is, are you a constituent? And that makes all exactly. the difference. <laughs> but I'm going to say it here too. If you are angry, if you are upset and you want change and you are fired up, get that ballot in in November. It really, contrary to many skeptics, it really does make a difference or can make a difference. After the break, Leah's going to share her Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's discussion and share your ideas for future guests. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Leah, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> so something I really appreciate about Julia Child is that she affirmed that it's really good for us to use whole natural ingredients, even when nutritionists were saying to the contrary. So things like, you know, butter and cream and 
um, animal fats and these things that we're able to raise here on our farm and we see as integral and, and healthy parts of a diet as opposed to margarine and highly manufactured things. So that's something I really appreciate about Julia Child. And then, you know, I'll just add that it's also important, I think, at the same time as we uplift her legacy, that we talk about the Black chefs um, and culinarians who we consider the founders of our food revolution and our food movement. So folks like Edna Lewis, Brian Terry, uh, Michael Twitty, um, Jessica Harris. And so there are many probably under, you know, underrepresented or not as well-known fabulous chefs who are advocating the same things over that stretch of time that also deserve some time in the spotlight. Well, thank you very much for highlighting that. And and many people don't know that Julia Child and Edna Lewis had the same editor and that it was uh, Judith Jones' passion for Julia that led into her having the clout to then advocate for Edna Lewis to be published. Oh, that's fantastic. And- I did not know that. <laughs> And I'm also glad you brought up the butter thing because we were internally the foundation having that conversation that now everyone thinks it's sort of cute and just just fun that Julia said, you know, if you're afraid of butter, use cream. And people put that on their plaques. And But when she said that, it was an incredible political statement. She She was doing it in her usual artful way, but she was saying, I'm not afraid of the fat police. I don't think this is right, even though everybody wanted to buy things that didn't have any fat in them. And it, it's mm-hmm. kind of funny how, right, that that phrase is taken on a different, like, more more fun meaning, but it was actually a very political and radical statement when she said it. Absolutely. And we see that now. Yeah, we see that now with people trying to get us to eat these corporate foods instead of the things that come right from the land and the things that our grandparents taught us to eat. And, you know, when folks say, how do we get healthier and strong? I'm like, just look at what your great grandparents ate and <laughs> go back to that and you'll you'll be 80% there at least. I know I hate to tell people that hummus chips, you need to look at the ingredients in that stuff. Anything that comes out of an extruding machine and goes into a bag is not going to be as good as something that comes out of the ground. Mm-hmm. Amen. Thank you very much for joining us today and taking time out and sharing your insights with us, Leah. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We appreciate it too. And we appreciate all of you for listening. Thank you very much. If you want to learn more about all that Leah's working on and what's going on at Soul Fire Farm, you can check out at Soul Fire Farm, all one word, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And that can also lead you right to all the information on their website, including the reparations map that uh, Leah mentioned. Coming soon, the Julia Child Award announcement and lots of summer news you don't want to miss. So follow us at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.